Boy, do I wish I had a voice like that. Behold. <laughs> anyway, I don't. This past week, I looked at three uh, of my older Bibles that I have used over the past many, many years. And I looked at the edges like this, you know, and I looked at the darker parts where my fingers hadn't been clean. And Anyway, uh, it's places where I had looked at the Bible a lot more than other places. And then there's places that are clean. The cleanest parts of those Bibles were in the prophets, okay? And it, it shows how much my fingers had touched other parts of the Bible, but not much of the prophets. There's 17 prophets in the, in the Old Testament, and that makes up 20% of the bulk of the Bible. And I don't read them a lot. When I do, it's kind of hard, and, and I, I ask myself, why do we not read them more? If this is the Word of God, why do we neglect these sec- sections? And I want to suggest three sentiments that we have toward the prophets And one is that they are confusing. Some of them have strange visions, especially in Daniel and a few other sections with science fiction-looking creatures. And once in a while, you'll see prophecy gurus on television that have charts and complicated timelines with words like tribulation and rapture and millennium and dispensational millennialism. And you wonder, is this nuclear physics or what is this? I heard some Bible prophecy expert warning about red heifers being secretly bred in Israel what's that got to do with anything? Or we hear of computer systems in Belgium programmed to keep track of the mark of the beast. And this speculation has made prophecy look like the National Enquirer section of the Bible. And another confusion is the prophets often jump from one topic to another without a lot of warning. They seem a little chaotic. One minute there's damnation and hellfire and the end is near and repent. And then the other time is God will bless and God will restore and take heart and, and have comfort. And one reason for that is they are written mostly during times of uncertainty and upheaval, and these books reflect those tumultuous times. But also, another reason they tend to be a little confusing is they did not sit down and actually write these things out. They were preachers, and so these are a collection of separate messages that have been strung together. And so there's some structure to them, but there's also some confusion. Another sentiment about the prophets is that, quite frankly, they're weird. Isaiah walks around stripped and barefoot for three years to make a political statement. Jeremiah staggers under an ox yoke to draw attention to his message of doom. Ezekiel lays on his side for months at a time, bound by ropes to show the future of Jerusalem. Isaiah names one of his kids, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Who would do that to their kid? I mean, and who's going to marry this guy? I'm Mrs. Meher Shalal Hashbaz, you know. And Isaiah names his kid that to make a point. And what kind of dad would name their kid just to make a point? These are odd people. What makes them act so weird? Let me ask you, when do you act weird? When do you tend to be a little irrational? How about when we get into a panic situation? Then we tend to do bizarre things. If you think your loved ones are about to be destroyed, you don't deliver polished, sophisticated speeches. You don't worry about being proper with your protocol. When people you love are facing certain danger, unless there's changes, you're going to do anything to wake them up, and you might do some weird stuff to get their attention. If there was a fire in this building right now, I would not expect someone to come in and politely say, excuse me, I hope I'm not interrupting anything here, but did you realize there's a foyer out in the foyer, fire, and it's headed this way, and it's headed upstairs to where your children are at, and you could all die, and you may want to do something about that. I don't expect politeness at that point. I expect someone to act like a madman. 
and scream and act weird and let people know we're in danger. And that's why, at least one reason, the prophets act the way they do. The people they love are in danger. But I don't think weirdness or confusion is the main reason we neglect these guys. The main reason, I hate to say this, but to many, the prophets are just boring. And in an entertainment culture, there is no worse thing than being boring. You might wonder how in the world they could be weird and boring at the same time, but these guys pull it off. And uh, in fact, do you know any preachers that are that way, weird and boring? I don't know of any like that, and I'm sure you don't either. When you read, the, when you read these guys, you get the feeling, and this is what makes them boring, they say the same thing over and over and over, and some of them are pretty long, and they just get tedious, and they all give variations of the same message over and over, like a lot of preachers. Isaiah is a long book, Jeremiah is even longer, and there's 17 of these guys, and it's almost like they're nagging the nation over and over and over, and you want to say, enough, we get it. Parents, you ever feel like a nag? Feel like beating your head against the wall with those words? Don't you wish you could just sit down once with that eight-year-old and give them a nice, reasonable talk on how they should behave, and then after you give them the talk, they get it, and they do it, and you don't have to nag them. Wouldn't that be nice? How many times do we have to remind them and keep repeating ourselves? And, and God is telling His people over and over the message to pound it into their thick skulls, and they're not getting it. So these guys are repetitious. They're nags. They're weird. Uh, but that's how some kids see their parents. You do weird nagging when you love someone, you want to keep them from destroying themselves. I'm going to give you one more reason. It's not on your outline, but I thought of this yesterday. Frankly, I think a lot of us don't like the message. Too much doom and gloom, too much destruction. Uh, plus, it talks a lot about economic injustice. That makes Americans a little uneasy to hear about that too. So, now that I've thoroughly convinced you not to read these guys... If they're confusing and weird and boring, why should I read them? Let me suggest a couple reasons, and we're going to be in Isaiah through the month of February, just so you'll know. They are thoroughly modern. Isaiah and all the prophets deal with the very same themes that face us today. The silence of God. Why do you not act? Why do we not hear from you? Economic disparity, injustice. Why is there so much poverty and starvation? The seeming sovereignty of evil and the rampant wickedness in the world. Why is there so much bad? They do address the doubts and the pains and the questions, the complexities, and even the political issues that we face. There is nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says. So I've called this series Trusting God in Uncertain Times. Isaiah lived in times of uncertainty, and as we learn how God spoke to him, as we learn what God spoke to him, God will speak to us. Second reason to read them, they do reveal the nature of God. They reveal His holiness, His compassion, His righteousness, His wrath, His comfort. And one clear thing that really comes through in these prophets is we matter deeply to God. He is deeply, deeply concerned about His people, especially when they rebel and are unfaithful. I want to give you an analogy. heard this several years ago. Imagine God going to a counselor. He makes an appointment with this counselor. He lays on the counseling couch. God is the client. He's paid $100 to be with this counselor for an hour. And he asks God, and this counselor asks God, tell me how you feel. And then God tells him. He says, I'll tell you how I feel. I feel like someone who finds a baby girl lying in a ditch near death. I take the girl home and make her my daughter. I clean her up, feed her. I adopt her as my own. I dote on her, clothe her, hang jewelry on her, teach her, pay for her schooling. I do everything for that girl. And then one day she runs away. I hear reports she's a drug addict, joined a gang, 
destroying her life. She's going to end up back in the ditch. I know it. When my name comes up, she curses it. I feel like she's twisting a knife in my stomach. I have done everything for her. I give her all this love and all this grace, and this is what I get in return. That's how I feel. And the prophets use all kinds of colorful examples like that to express God's sense of betrayal over the broken covenant of His people. So this is not some distant, uncaring deity out there somewhere. He cares. He's intricately involved in our lives. But also, I want to add this, God is not weak, of course. That's where the counseling analogy breaks down. He's not helpless. He is powerful and sovereign, sometimes given to violence and wrath and destruction. He is in control. He doesn't really need a counselor. In fact, He sends us a counselor, the wonderful counselor. So we're going to spend a few weeks in this book. I want to challenge you to read uh, this week the first six chapters, and next week we're going to talk about chapter 6, which was perhaps the seminal moment in Isaiah's life. Uh, Six chapters is just one chapter a day with one day off. Uh, And yes, it might be a little weird at times and sometimes confusing, maybe a little tedious, but one writer said of all the books of the Old Testament, Isaiah is perhaps the richest. There will be some phrases that will sound familiar to to you, some words from the words we would read at Christmas and some from uh, Easter and some second coming passages. You'll hear them in Isaiah. Uh, They're just quoting him. You know, the new heaven and new earth comes out of Isaiah. Some have called Isaiah the greatest book in the Old Testament. The New Testament references Isaiah 411 times. That's a lot. So as you read this, you'll come across a passage. Oh, I've heard that somewhere before. It sounds familiar. What's in the New Testament? So it's a very important book, both to Jews and to Christians. So Isaiah 1.1 says the vision... Concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. God's people were divided at this time into two kingdoms, north and south. North was Israel, south was Judah. And for the most part, both of them were experiencing relatively peace and prosperity at this time. The market was up, unemployment was okay, they had some pretty good paying jobs, and these kings were fairly stable, uh, pretty long reigns. Both kingdoms had, had some sense of security but it was a false sense of security. Complacency had set in because there are some ominous clouds on the horizon. Assyria is closing in from the north, and their future is really uncertain. So this is, I think this could describe the United States. It's pretty modern. Things are going well in America. The market's doing fairly well, except for this last week. Uh, There's been somewhat of a recovery from the crash we had a few years ago. You know, some people are prospering. But we also have these ominous clouds of terrorism and this uncertainty in the world, and, and yet complacency. When terrorists get a hold of a nuclear device, and it's not if, it's when, do we understand what that could do? And yet I don't sense a lot of deep concern in the United States. Things are okay. Our life's pretty good. We just go on in uncertainty and complacency, and that's a bad combination. So Isaiah has a vision. I mean, the word vision is not just a dream. It's not a mystical event necessarily. Vision actually carries the idea of insight or perception. Isaiah sees some things that others won't see. He sees Israel and Judah from God's perspective. And we need to let Isaiah show us God's perspective and give them some insight from him. Verse 2, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, all creation. For the Lord has spoken, 
I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Can you just hear the angst in this? Hear the heart of God, the heart of Isaiah? I've raised up children. They've rebelled. Even animals know better than humans. The ox knows who his master is, but God's people don't. Why do you persist in rebellion? He asked a little later on. The word rebel and rebellion, by the way, occurs five times, and I think it's really the main theme of this first chapter. And one of the basic definitions of sin is rebellion, which simply says, I'm going to do it my way. And I got to thinking, there's a lot to be said for rebellion, and it's easy to see why so many rebel against God and why children rebel against their parents, because I don't have to listen. And I can do what I want to do. I can enjoy life. I know better than God knows what's going to make me happy. I can do what I want to do instead of serving people or going to church. You know, at times, rebellion is really quite handy. Serving others and obedience and doing what God wants me to do. Uh, rebellion is really attractive. So Isaiah makes four points about it to give us some insight. Rebellion is not smart, first of all. Originally, I was going to say S-T-U-P-I-D because that's what Isaiah is really saying. Rebellion is just not, doesn't make sense. Even an ox knows who his master is. The donkey, an animal not considered particularly bright, knows where his home is. The ass is smarter than we are. They know who cares for them. The animals understand who's in control, but the people of God, they don't understand. They don't get it. Surely you're not as dumb as an ox. About a century ago, a document was published signed by leading figures around the world, you would have recognized many of the names, called the Humanist Manifesto. And one of the foundational tenets of that document is, basically, we don't need God. In fact, it says literally, uh, I quote, no deity will or can save us, we must save ourselves. Now, you don't hear much about that, but it had an impact, and it's really been kind of the uh, the gist of Western society for a hundred years. And recently, I remember uh, I saw this a couple of weeks ago, politicians were saying they were praying for the San Bernardino victims and their families and things. And a headline came out, you know, God's not the answer. God's not going to solve these problems. And all through Isaiah, his book shows how S-T-U-P-I-D that is. He says later, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. These powerful economies and militaries are like dust on the scales. China, speck of dust compared to him. These kings and these princes that you trust in are blips on the screen, and your rebellion against the creator of the universe is just S-T-U-P-I-D. Not smart. Another thing about it, it has consequences in that it leads to deterioration. Verse 4, loaded with guilt, brood of evildoers, given to corruption, rebellion against God, leads to ethical, moral, spiritual, and social deterioration. Now, in our culture, 1962 was a rather, at least symbolically, a telling moment in our culture. School prayer was legally eliminated. I don't think school prayer was ever, well, or ever will be eliminated, but legally. And you can look at charts on morality and the attitudes and behavior. Up to 1962 or thereabouts, those charts would be fairly stable, fairly predictable levels of morality. 
and behavior. After 1962, teenage sex goes up immediately and dramatically. Drug use goes up sharply. Crime goes up. Scholastic scores go down. Chart after chart after chart showing the deterioration of a culture. And I know there's other factors, but when you take God out of the system and rebel against God, you're going to start deteriorating. You take Him out of your life, same thing's going to happen. I'm not sure that single act had all of that impact, you know, that, that school prayer thing, but it was symbolic of where our culture was heading. And some of you might be old enough also to remember when Time Magazine had a headline on the front page, God is dead. And we are where Judah was in the day of Isaiah, pretty well off, fairly wealthy, deteriorating, and clouds on the horizon. I never dreamed one, uh, that one day I'd have to deal with some of the moral issues we have to deal with today, and we call them progress. That's what happens in rebellion. Third thing, rebellion can and does affect us, religious people. These are people of God He's speaking to. They, they worship Him. In fact, down in verse 13, God says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, and convocation. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. The Israelites were still worshiping. They were going to the temple. They were doing prayers. They were giving their offerings, doing the sacrifices, and thinking, we're doing what God wants us to do. And God says, stop. Stop it. Maybe they had a magical view of worship or maybe a dutiful view of worship, kind of like those who have a magical view of baptism, you know, once I'm wet, I'm okay, or a magical view of communion, well, I've done my duty this week. God says, I have no pleasure in those sacrifices. They're an abomination because they're not real. Even if you offer many prayers down in verse 15, he says, I will not listen. Pray all you want. I can go to church every Sunday. I bow when I pray. Listen politely to the sermon, and God says, yuck. Because they were hypocrites. Their religious assemblies did not affect their real lives. They were still doing their own thing, exploiting the poor, not godly. Rebellion affects, maybe I should say infects, religious people. And then verse 5. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when they over, overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. And Gomorrah. Cities lie waste. Country is desolate. If you act like Sodom and Gomorrah, you're going to get what Sodom and Gomorrah got. He's pre-seeing their future here. This is where their rebellion is headed. So rebellion has devastating consequences. Now, we all know there's consequences for physical behavior. But then we want to turn around and insist there's no consequences for spiritual behavior. We are not offended by the law of gravity. We do not feel like it's unfair if we jump off a 40-story uh, building and do irreparable damage to ourselves. That's what happens when you break the law of gravity. There's going to be consequences. And yet if someone has the nerve to suggest that there might be comparable laws in the spiritual realm, that person is pronounced as judgmental. Behavior has consequences in both the physical and spiritual world. The law of marital fidelity is much a law as the law of gravity. You break either one, there's going to be a price. And Isaiah will suffer because of their rebellion. 
Most people don't like prophets. They're too negative and pessimistic. They're not popular. They don't say what people want to hear, and they are kind of weird. And one of my jobs is to be a prophet. And I get pressure, every preacher does, to not say things that need to be said. I don't like being a prophet. I'll go home depressed some Sundays because I knew I said some things that people would be offended at. It's not a very popular message. Prophets in the Old Testament were not very popular for the most part because they had to say some hard things. Did they love the people? You bet. Their hearts broke for them. Did the people like them? Mm, Not usually. The prophets know we cannot get better until we diagnose the problem. Do you want your doctor to tell you what you want to hear, or do you want to hear the truth? So this chapter, I mean, the first chapter, he does not start off with good news. Isaiah is not comforting them, but I do want to suggest that awareness of bad news is central to our healing. I cannot get well until I recognize what's wrong. There are times I'm amazed that I can have some of the thoughts I have and the attitudes I have the pettiness, the temper, the worry. I am amazed how much of that old nature is still hanging on. But I've also found when I come to worship, when I'm really aware of my shortcomings, the worship is richer, deeper, more meaningful because I understand deeper and deeper how much grace it took to save a wretch like me and how dependent I am. The mornings when worship is really powerful is not so much when I'm righteous and good and holy, it's when I know how unrighteous I can be and when I'm weak. We see some people who worship with gusto, you know, and they're really into it and everything, and some others are thinking, ah, they're a hypocrite because I know what they're really like. Well, maybe they worship with gusto because they know what they're like, and they know they have sin issues, and they know it took amazing grace to save them. You really can't sing, Lord, I praise you, and I lift your name high. You can't sing that until you first say, woe is me, and I desperately need you. People who are aware of sin tend to have more humility. People who are aware of sin tend to be less judgmental because they see their own weaknesses. They tend to do less complaining because they realize how richly and undeservedly they've been blessed. They tend to be more grateful. They tend to be more joyful because they know the depth of God's love. They tend to be more open to God. People who are aware of sin tend to be the best worshipers and the best servants. It's not the righteous that are closest to God. If that's true, the Pharisees would have been the closest to Jesus. It's the humble. God's back in His counseling office, laying on the couch, and He's paid another $100. says, I'll tell you how I feel. I feel like a man who falls in love with the most beautiful woman in the world. And I shower her with love. I do everything for her. When she hurts, I heal her. When she cries, I comfort her. I hold her. She is the apple of my eye, and I lavish gifts on her and love on her. And yet she lusts after my best friends and my enemies, and she'll go to bed with anyone who'll look at her. She stands on the boulevard and pays people to have sex with her. Unlike a common prostitute, she doesn't even charge for her services. She gives herself to anyone and then comes back to me and expects even more out of me. I feel so betrayed, jilted, and used. That's how I feel. Do we get it? The more we understand this, the more we will lift him up and humble ourselves at his feet. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a righteous one like me. No that saved a wretch. 
I once was lost in rebellion, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for Jesus and for amazing grace that saved us from our rebellion. Lord, I pray that you'll let Isaiah's vision, his insight, become insight for us. Let his vision of who you are, your holiness and righteousness and your goodness be clear to us. And let us see clearly the rebellion in our own hearts. And let us see the goodness of your grace and that you have given us our only hope. You've given us life. You've given us purpose and joy. And may we live in lives of submission to your will. Lord, our everything belongs to you. Thank you for saving us. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.